Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another big story that happened this week was the first big trial in the opioid crisis kicked off in Oklahoma. It's going to have wide-ranging implications for hundreds of other lawsuits. The state will argue that Johnson & Johnson's deceptive marketing campaign created a public nuisance that will cost the state $17 billion to take care of. Sarah Randazzo, legal reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what this case is really all about. Can a company be held responsible for the opioid crisis? Johnson & Johnson is the only company left that's going to trial. But when this case was first filed two years ago, Oklahoma's really big target was more Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin. But back in March, Purdue reached a $270 million settlement, which got itself out of this case. And then just on Sunday, a third defendant called Teva Pharmaceutical, based in Israel, also settled for $85 million. So it's left the entire case resting on the shoulders of of Johnson & Johnson, which is an interesting situation since they're not the company that people most associate with opioids. What is the specific argument against Johnson & Johnson? What drug are they pointing to that caused people to get get addicted to opioids. They say that all of these companies, their allegation is that they broadly marketed opioids to say that they should be used for really widespread pain management instead of just severe pain or end-of-life pain, which used to be more prevalent before the mid-90s. And specifically, Johnson Johnson made a few drugs. One is a, a fentanyl patch that's called Duragesic that still is made by the company. They had another opioid painkiller called Nucinta that they sold off in 2015. And then the state is also roping in some businesses Johnson & Johnson had until 2016 that actually made the raw materials and processed the poppy into narcotic raw materials that were then used to make other drugs that other companies made. So they're kind of looking at all these different things from the company and also looking at broad marketing that they were involved in through pain management groups that would have broad ad campaigns saying opioids are good for XYZ reason without naming any drugs specifically. This trial is going to be very high profile. They say that's going to last maybe about two months. There's cameras that are allowed in the court room. So we're going to be getting updates on this thing constantly. And it's just so important because of the implications that it has for all of the other lawsuits that are pending against drug makers and whatnot, being on the hook for getting people addicted to opioids. Specifically, how is Oklahoma going to argue this against Johnson & Johnson? They're using a public nuisance law that that's how they're going to be trying to argue. Can you help explain that? When they started this case two years ago, they had several other causes of action in there, including fraud and things involving Medicaid. And then a couple weeks or months before trial, they got rid of all their claims and really focused in on public nuisance, which is basically a a pretty wide-ranging law that can be used for any time the public's access or health is being implicated by something. And so it's never been used in quite this context to try to hold a a drug maker accountable for a public health crisis, but it's been used in things like private property disputes or public property disputes. And it's been used with mixed success in in other cases over the years involving lead paint and climate change and different things. But this is a, a somewhat novel use of this law. So the trial just got underway 
What have opening statements been like for both sides? Each side got two hours. The state really summarized its entire arc of, of what they think Johnson & Johnson did. And Purdue, even though they've settled, they did come up in the openings. They started with Purdue launching OxyContin in 1996 and then said their narrative was that Johnson & Johnson basically copied some of the things Purdue did with its own drugs and that over time they showed charts tracking the number of prescriptions going up and, and the amount of addiction and, and drug overdose deaths going up. And so they say that shows correlation between the two. And then Johnson Johnson got up there and, and pointed to the fact that its drugs are heavily regulated and that it follows all regulations from the FDA and, and the DEA in terms of how many drugs can enter the market and, and what kinds of labels they need. And they say their labels clearly warned of, of any risks. And so it was just a real classic back and forth as these openings tend to be of one side laying it on thick and then the other one countering just as strongly. Johnson & Johnson has not had a good go at it recently. They were also in a bunch of lawsuits for their baby powder products. We're just expected to see a lot of testimony from family members who've been impacted by the opioid crisis. And then uh, state officials, I guess they said that how the state could fix all this stuff, it would cost them about $17 billion. That number Johnson Johnson is, is really pushing back on and saying it's, it's a bit excessive. And how could it cost them that much over the next 20 or 30 years to fix this? And they're trying to get us to pay for things like needle exchanges and yoga programs. And we'll hear a lot more about that as the trial goes on in terms of what went into that number and what the state thinks it'll cost to fix this and, and why the company doesn't think it should be its responsibility. Sarah Randazzo, legal report for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thanks. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda, for a little update on this story. Thank you for being here, Miranda. Hey, Oscar. As we suspected, we're going to get a lot of testimony, a lot of emotional testimony in this case. And we're going to learn a lot more of the practices of these companies, how all of this stuff was marketed. In testimony, we heard from the father of a college football player who died of a drug overdose. His name was Craig Box. He was holding back tears when he was testifying, and he said that his son, Austin, he was 22 years old. He was an Oklahoma linebacker. He was abusing painkillers, and they didn't really know it until after he was found unconscious at a friend's house in 2011 and then later died at a hospital. Here's a little portion of his testimony. We heard from so many parents across that have lost children in similar circumstances that the same story as us had no idea, had no clue about the prevalence of these drugs. Now, Craig Box didn't know what painkillers his son was taking. He was called as a witness to support the Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter's assertion that Johnson & Johnson helped cause this epidemic by marketing opioids as safe and effective for everyday pain and totally downplaying the addictive aspects of the medication. I'm wondering if that might work against them because he didn't know what specific right. opioids they were taking. I mean, was it something under the purview of Johnson & Johnson? Johnson & Johnson, for their part, denies any wrongdoing, arguing that they properly marketed their opioids and that the state cannot prove it caused the epidemic. To support their claims, the state's lawyers played a videotaped deposition from Dr. Russell Portnoy, who was a physician who spent years advocating the use of opioids for chronic pain and acting as a paid speaker and consultant for drug makers like Johnson & Johnson. He's concluded that their conduct and marketing without context, without education, without risk, produced an increase in inappropriate and unsafe prescribing that contributed to the public health crisis. So if they're using their own guy against Johnson & Johnson, maybe that gives them a little more power. But this is just a taste of some of that testimony that we're going to continue to hear throughout this two-month trial. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Last week, another horse died at the Santa Anita racetrack in California. 
bringing the total to 26 horses since December. It's unclear what is causing all these breakdowns, but there are increased calls for a moratorium on racing at that track. John Sherva, horse racing reporter at the LA Times, joins us to discuss why so many horses are dying at Santa Anita. Well, that's certainly the big question is, is people don't really know why. They had this incredible cluster of 23 over six or seven weeks, and then they went six weeks without any breakdowns, with any fatalities, and then now we're back with three and nine days. There's a lot of speculation as to what might be causing it. There was 20 inches of rain, you know, might have compromised the racing surface. What happens is when it rains, what they do is they call what seal the track, which means they, they tamp it down really hard so that the water runs off it and it doesn't become mud. But then horses end up running on a very hard surface, and potentially that could create micro fractures that then show up later. That's one theory. Another one is that there's not a good enough vetting process that some horses that shouldn't be running are running. There's no real concrete evidence, but there's a big investigation into that. There's just all kinds of, of things. And it's also possible that when this is all over, that we won't know exactly what's caused these 26 deaths, or at least most of them. Why do we think we haven't come to a conclusion? I mean, if you, they say the racetrack is too soft, horse's foot gets caught and, you know, it breaks a leg. OK, then there's the micro fractures that you were also talking about. Why haven't they been able to pin it down? What do you think is so difficult about finding out the real answer? Because there's not a lot of commonalities. It's not like they're breaking down in one part of the track or on one part of the surface. The horses are all different kind. I mean, the last one to go down was a nine-year-old gelding, which is very unusual because if a horse makes it to nine years old and continues to racing, it's because they know how to take care of their body. They know how to run. They know all the... I don't think we've had any two-year-olds go down, but then we've had our fair share of three-year-olds go down. And the absolute best thing that could have happened to Santa Anita is if they had just, if they'd have said, oh, there's this the soft pothole on the backstretch right. or something like that, which is what happened, at, not that specifically, but when Delmar had its problem on the turf course, they discovered the turf course was flawed. But here it's, it's Tim Ritbo, the COO, calls it multifactorial, and that's really what it is. It could be any number of factors, and they've done all the tests, you know, extensive dirt tests and and just not come up with anything. For listeners that don't follow horse racing very closely, help explain to us, why the horses need to be euthanized. I mean, it's usually a breakdown, they call it. The horse trips over, something happens to their leg, then they have to end up euthanizing them after. What happens there? Basically, the, the misconception is that the horse falls or crashes to the ground. That doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, they'll take a step and the jockey will immediately notice it and he'll pull them up. So they're actually just standing there. The problem with a horse is that it can't be immobile for very long. Now, when you think of a table with four legs and you take off one of those legs, can't use it, then it puts extra pressure on the other three legs. Well, in a horse, if you put extra pressure, and these horses weigh 1,000, 1,200 pounds, it really, they're just not designed, and, and I apologize to your, your listeners' advance for the graphic nature of this, but the bone in the other leg is supporting so much weight that it actually will just start pushing down into the hoof. And one of the common diseases is called laminitis, which is where the, the hoof structure cannot support the bone because it's not equally distributed over four legs. 
that's generally the reason that they're euthanized because you have to keep that fourth leg immobile for so long, it just leads to complications. Horse deaths are just a part of horse racing, the sport in general. How often are these happening and why is there so much interest in it this time? Because, I mean, this is not the first time that this has happened before, obviously. No, Delmar had a problem, Aqueduct had a problem, Saratoga had a problem. I'm not going to say they're common, but they're not uncommon, if that makes any sense. They just sort of cluster at certain tracks at certain times and why they try to figure out exactly what went wrong, it changes from different places. Like the, the racing surface, let's say in New Orleans at fairgrounds is designed to handle a lot of water. A track at Santa Anita, because we're in California, is not designed to handle a lot of water. So these are all just sort of some of the factors that come into why these things, you know, just sort of happen. And now, kind of where we are currently, there's a lot of protesters saying that this needs to be stopped. The horse racing needs to be stopped. Senator Dianne Feinstein has called for a moratorium on racing at Santa Anita specifically. Even the LA Times editorial board says that we need to stop this season where it is now. What kind of reforms has Santa Anita put in place and are they helping with anything at least? What you're dealing with here is a public perception problem. Here's the fact. If you have horse racing, horses are going to die. I think that this has gained so much national interest and so much attention, partly because as we've evolved in the last couple of decades, the animal is really that much higher in our consciousness than others. I mean, I have a dog, oh, yeah. and uh, while I do not think my dog is, is equal to me, I would risk my life to save my dog. There was a car chase just the other day in the city where a dog ran out of the RV, and people were more concerned with that dog's safety versus the two cars that the RV slammed into. So, yeah, I mean, totally understand how animals really figure into a lot of people's lives. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great example. I mean, California is, is a more progressive state. It tries to isolate problems, see them, correct them, those sort of things. Like, if this happens in Kentucky, people understand horses are going to die in, in horse races. I don't know what an acceptable number is other than zero. Right. And that's what the industry has to kind of come up with is is the fact that our threshold for fatalities is zero, even though it may not be obtainable. And as a matter of fact, it would statistically would not be obtainable. That's all that percolated up and made this happen. John Sherva reporting for the L.A. Times covering horse racing and sports. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. One of the fun stories we covered this week has to do with smart doorbells. As more households are installing these smart doorbells, some are using them as nature cameras, checking the video all day long and obsessing over that wildlife that they see at their front door. Some are even checking these doorbell streams about 30 times in a day, saying it's better than watching TV or being on social media. We spoke to Sarah Needleman. She's a tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal for the new nature cameras. These cameras alert you on your phone if there's been motion. And most people go out and buy these cameras for security purposes, especially to thwart porch pirates, anyone who steals a, you know, a package off of your porch, which is unfortunately a common problem. But what I found is that on the brighter side of things, the cameras do indeed provide this amazing window into what happens outside your home with Mother Nature when you're not around, or even you might be home but just not looking at your front door. And it just is something about having that in your fingertips 
especially when you're away from home, especially if you miss it or you're at work and you're bored and you could just look at home, it's comforting. And like, here's like Animal Planet, but it's your own totally. yard. <laughs> you know, there's something about it being your yard that makes that squirrel, oh, that's the chubby squirrel that we see every day or Rocky Raccoon or whatever it is. And we sometimes find ourselves giving them little pet names and you just start to you know, develop like a funny sort of relationship <laughs> with these animals. That is exactly um, what I wanted to bring up. You talked to various people and you saw a lot of videos from, from various people. One person in particular, they were constantly checking in on these series of cats that were going back and forth overnight. And they said, oh, you know, we get excited when we see that black and white one because he or she visits less frequently. So people like just like TV form these attachments to the characters that they see there. Yeah. I mean, the one woman, she was seeing a hummingbird. She called the hummingbird Hetty and called it her Hetty Cams. She actually ended up getting two more cams because of it. And then I was looking at one of the comments posted to the article and someone said that they had also named a turkey. They named her Priscilla. I am not sure. <laughs> couldn't tell you why. We have in my backyard Gary the Groundhog. I'm sure every groundhog that comes is different, but they're all Gary as far as we're concerned yeah. in, my, in my household. It's just hilarious to see them. And it's certainly, you know, a relief when you see it's just an animal and not a prowler come up on your uh, doorbell. But once you get hooked and you start seeing them, it's, it's fun to look at. Every day, especially in the case of the, you know, one of the examples was a woman who saw two chicks hatch and then she watched them grow up over the next two and a half weeks before they flew away. It was really, you know, nice just to see that evolution of time. Between Amazon.com's Ring, Google Nest and all these other makers, they collectively rang up about $370 million in global sales. That's up 51%. The $370 million was in 2018 and oh, okay. that was up 51% for 2017. So like these cameras are really hot. Like they're the hot thing of 2018 and their sales are still going strong this year. And Ring on their website, mm -hmm. they dedicated a section of videos to these things. You know, if people want to submit crazy videos or animals or things like that, and that's so smart for them to do because people love this kind of stuff. Well, they just started getting, people were submitting them without even asking. Like, they just started putting them. So they got so many, they said, okay, we'll make a section of it. And then they ended up doing this commercial using footage from one of the user's cameras of a bear getting into a car. And this is quite the bear. And he opens the door, gets in, sits down, and comes back out. It's just amazing. The folks at Ring said to me that even though they did, their mission is to provide security, it turns out that animals are among the most popular, if not the most popular sightings of that that people capture and cherish. Yeah, one of the best ones is the footage of a small lizard. It's kind of puffing its throat. It's crawling around. And that's total Planet Earth style video right there. Tell us about how often people are checking these, because that was one of the things that kept coming up. Instead of checking social media, they're going to be checking their video all day. And they just yeah. kind of felt a sense of comfort or just fascination with it. They were checking it 30 times a day. The woman with the chick, she was really out there. She checked it 30 times a day because she was just blown away. Most people I spoke to just check it on average about a dozen times a day, a little more, a little less, depending on their day. But every time they get an alert, some of them check it. I mean, one woman I spoke to didn't end up with the story, but she was so obsessed with her phone that she would pull over her car on the side of the road when she got an alert because she was just dying to see what it was. People look for things other than nature, but nature seems to be probably the most common sighting. One gentleman said he was checking it all the time because a heron was treating his koi pond like yeah. a sushi joint. There's video in the story. You see he's a very good hunter and he does indeed snag a fish. And so this guy's been checking his camera because he tries to go out there and deter the bird and scare it away. But he has not been successful. Um, this bird is determined. So 
Well, as far as security um, and safety are concerned, if you're not catching a porch pirate, this has got to be the next best thing to see a lot of crazy little animals running around and, and getting a kick out of it, enjoying it. Especially if it, you know it's raccoons. You know they have the little masks on their eyes, and <laughs> right. they they they're like prowlers. They're just cute prowlers. But yeah, we 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 are catching quote unquote thieves. But in this case, like I said, it's a heron stealing a fish. Sometimes it's raccoons stealing food out of a bird feeder. It is quite a trip to see all these different animals. They're a lot of fun to look at. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great one. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.